Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. The Southeast Asian nation of Myanmar is in the news at this very moment, and we wanted to jump on this topic right away. And today we have with us Robert Walsh, a project manager in Myanmar, who is the person that we need to talk about these issues. Robert, welcome. It's nice to be here. Robert, when we started talking about Myanmar, our managing partner, Dan Harris, said, you have to talk to Robert Walsh. He's the guy. He's the person with experience. Uh, I think he referred to you as Mr. Myanmar. So please tell us about that experience that you have in Myanmar, including what took you to the country in the first place. I spent quite a bit of time in Asia myself, and I'm always fascinated uh, to hear about the, the pathways that take um, Americans and others to, to those faraway lands. Well, as it happens, uh, my engagement with Burma started when I was still in the, uh, in the Army. My last nine years in the Army, I uh, went to a special unit that had a language requirement. At the time, there were not many uh, Army linguists who spoke Burmese. As a matter of fact, I think I was one of two people who trained back in the early 1990s. We were fortunate to attend uh, University of Washington's Southeast Asian Studies Summer Institute and have as our professors uh, John O'Kell and uh, Usal Tun. John recently passed away, but he is regarded as the, the guru of teaching uh, Burmese. And one of the things that he gave all of his students was curiosity and real uh, fondness for Myanmar. When I got out of the Army, I went into biotech, ended up spending about 12 years in uh, Nanjing, China. And that's where my association with your law firm started, in that I and Dan Harris uh, had a lot of back and forth on the ground truth of Chinese biotech and pharmaceuticals. However, in 2012, a Korean company I was working with on and off asked me to go down to uh, Myanmar for about three months uh, to do an assessment of what was going on in the country and what was likely to happen after political reforms uh, started under the Thane Sein government. So I produced a rather voluminous assessment for the Koreans. And then uh, in January of 2013, they asked me to go back to Myanmar. And working uh, with one of their people there, we opened a general project management shop. So from about 2013 to the present, I've uh, been in uh, Myanmar. 
uh, working on projects from uh, rollout of the mobile phone network to vaccine delivery, to wind power, to uh, plantations for endangered species trees. So I have my fingers in way too many pies right now. However, the country has possibilities. The people are a lot of fun, even if they're not as uh, decadent and fun-loving as their neighbors, the Thais. But the projects I have are ongoing, and I'm likely to be in the country for at least another five years. That's fascinating. And I definitely look forward to delving more into Myanmar itself. But I wanted to go back to something you, you mentioned about your, your language training and, and how your teacher helped instill in you that appreciation for the country. I'm a former Foreign Service officer and went through the State Department's language school in, in, in Virginia. And I can definitely relate to that. I, I was studying Mandarin and and frankly, the experience was a bit mixed. We had a lot of instructors and, and and they were definitely a mixed bag in terms of how they helped us develop or not an appreciation for for the country. Plus, of course, we had people from from, from Taiwan and from the mainland, which, which um, complicated things a, a little bit. But I, I, I certainly had classmates heading to different places that were able to really develop very meaningful relationships with their instructors. And, and, I, and I could see that, that dynamic that, that you are describing. I can see how that can really, really make a difference. Obviously, as we record, Myanmar is in the, is in the news. We'll, we'll go into that very soon. But, but before we do that, I was hoping you could give us a sort of lay of the land, uh, a scene setter, if you will, about what's been happening there. And, you know, we can, we can go back as far as you want. But I think that for me, at least one useful departure point would be the Obama administration and that period of certain hopefulness when it came to Myanmar. He, he went there, walked around uh, in his socks, polishing the floor at the, uh, the pagoda there. I, I was just reminiscing about that recently. At that moment, things seemed to be on the up and up for the country. I went there for the first time in 2016. I uh, was, was impressed, really enjoyed going there. It was one of my favorite places for me to go as part of my beat in that part of the world. Uh, went back there the year after and, and was able to see in, in the span of one year quite a bit of, of development and change. And overall, I just thought this was a, a very promising place. And then not too long after that, um, there were a number of things that started happening that made me sour a little bit on, on the country, even though I was looking at it as an outsider. But I was probably not the only one. So, so perhaps could you just take us through what's been happening there in the past few years? Yeah, as it happens, uh, President Obama visited Myanmar twice, uh, the first time in November 2012 and then the second time in November 2014. And I believe that uh, Secretary of State Clinton also visited at least once. And this was kind of a reward for the uh, military finally acceding to having uh, elections. The elections were held in 2015. But uh, with the visits of uh, Hillary Clinton and President Obama, people started to take Myanmar seriously. And more importantly, Myanmar people themselves uh, started taking themselves seriously. They had been on a, a very long Rib Van Winkle type sleep from 1962 to 2012 with all kinds of disasters uh, in between. 
But uh, Thane Sane's government uh, deciding to uh, allow elections and also to allow uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and the uh, National League for Democracy to participate, that was, that was quite a big thing. At the same time, President Obama was willing to look at lifting sanctions. And uh, by October of 2016, all of the sanctions had been revoked. And that made a big difference, uh, although it took a couple of years. Banking between American banks and Myanmar banks was damn near impossible to move any money back and forth. But what was funny in 2012 and 2013 was when we had all kinds of uh, get-rich-quick, fast-buck carpetbagger types showing up in uh, Yangon, believing that it was the next big thing and believing that there was, you know, money to be made anywhere. Well, it's not exactly that way there. Uh, These kind of people showing up from about 2012 to 2014, they thought, yeah, the streets would be paved with gold. Uh, But the fact is, uh, once they actually got there, they discovered that Not only were the streets not paved, they weren't paved with gold. And what's more, the Myanmar people were expecting them to do the paving for them. It probably took until about 2015 before we cleared these kind of people out of the country. Yeah, there's money to be made in Myanmar, but you're going to have to work pretty damned hard for it. Politically, I would have to say that Uh, the election of uh, Donald Trump pretty much brought the end of any political process within the country, if not to a plateau, then to a pretty precipitous drop. All of the upward progress that had been made under uh, the Obama administration pretty quickly stopped in uh, 2017. And Myanmar kind of fell off uh, the U.S. government's map. Since Trump was elected, I don't think we've had a single senior uh, administration official visit the country. I believe that uh, when Trump was meeting with Kim Jong-un in Singapore, uh, Matt Pottinger uh, flew up for a day or two. But since then, I, I don't believe anybody of note from the administration came out. Now, the Myanmar military, for its part, felt uh, that they were empowered and had permission to go ahead and kick off on the uh, Muslim Rohingya in, uh, in Rakhine State. And why not? Trump doesn't like brown Muslims. They don't like brown Muslims. They feel that uh, the Rohingya are actually illegal aliens. And we all know how uh, Trump's administration feels about them. So... I would say politically, the progress stopped. The foreign investment remained steady. The Myanmar government, uh, Myanmar Investment Committee, uh, got better and better. It became uh, easy to register and administer a company, and it uh, got easier to move money uh, in and out. So two tracks, uh, economy, uh, investment, and then on the other side, political, the two were not matching. That's kind of how I would set the scene leading up to the most recent election on November 8th of 2020. So what's happened since then? What's going on right now? There's, uh, I think, a, a threshold question to consider is, can we really describe what's happened as a coup? And if that's the case, um, what exactly triggered it? What has happened since, since those elections? The 2015 elections uh, went by smoothly and quietly. 
I was in Yangon for the uh, November 2015 elections, and it was about like Salt Lake City on a Sunday morning. That's how quiet and orderly things were. Generally, everybody accepted the election results. All of the foreign embassies had multiple teams of polling place uh, observers out. I actually hosted uh, the Americans uh, way up in Kachin State at Putao. So I think everybody was satisfied that uh, for its first election in several decades, it was a good election. Now, for 2020 elections, remember that we had COVID going on. And the Myanmar uh, Ministry of Health and the government in general handled uh, the response to COVID pretty well. I can't really fault them on anything that they did. However, as part of social distancing, they could not run polling places uh, the way they had done previously. For whatever reason, uh, the military-affiliated party, the Union Solidarity Development Party, USDP, felt that they should have done much better in the election. According to the Constitution, 25% of uh, the assembly seats are supposed to go to the military. Uh, But in the election, uh, the military did not achieve that. I believe that uh, the NLD actually got, I think, 83%. And the military felt slighted, and uh, taking another page from Donald Trump, The best that they could do was allege wide-scale voter fraud on the order of uh, nearly 11 million instances of voter fraud. That's kind of hard to do in that country. At any rate, starting in late November of last year, uh, the army started rumbling about this. And unfortunately, I have to tell you, I wasn't following it very closely because I didn't take it very seriously at the time. However, in early January of this year, the army started getting more and more vocal about not accepting the results of the election. And perhaps maybe they ought to think about stepping in and taking over. I don't know how seriously uh, the foreign embassies and observers outside of Myanmar uh, took this kind of grumbling. Myself, I took it pretty seriously. Uh, because the Myanmar army doesn't normally do this kind of thing unless they are intending to act in some way. Nevertheless, about midnight uh, last night, I started getting calls from Myanmar. I'm in Bellingham right now, but I started getting calls from uh, all of my teammates uh, scattered all over Myanmar telling me what was going on. And for the people, it was quite a shock. And not only was it kind of a shock, the young people who work for me are at least old enough to remember what life was like under the military and how bad the economy was. So they know that there's a lot at stake if the country loses a year to the military. Uh, As of this morning, the military had announced that there will be a one-year-long emergency government. In addition to uh, detaining NLD leaders all over the country, not only in Naypyidaw and Yangon, but all over, They intend to uh, run some sort of emergency government for a year. And then what happens after that, I don't know. I would say it's going to take us a good week before things become a little clearer. I can speculate, though. We'd welcome that that speculation. And perhaps in order to frame it, let me ask you this. Do you think that the long-term or let's say medium-term plan 
is to get people to, quote unquote, reassess their choices and perhaps um, set the stage for uh, a new election in a year's time that hopefully, from the point of view of the military, gives them the results that they feel are fair. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, taking a, a cue from <laughs> from our own issues here, right? Maybe maybe that, that way they can, they can stop the steal if they have another election in a year's time. The fact is that the parallels between what's been going on in, in the United States and Myanmar are, are too stark to ignore. Had it not been for the COVID-19 and had it not been for the fact that generally everybody in Myanmar feels that uh, the NLD government has done a very good job on that. Going into the election, if it were not for COVID, perhaps the military would have done a bit better. The military itself stood aside from the, uh, the COVID-19 response. Uh, they helped when they were asked and uh, you know their, their help was welcome but they uh, allowed the civilian side of the government to go ahead and take care of things, and they did a very good job. That having been said, at the same time, uh, were it not for COVID, uh, people were somewhat dissatisfied with the NLD's handling of the economy. They weren't so dissatisfied that they would welcome uh, the military stepping in to handle it, that has historical precedent. Twice in the 1950s, the military was asked by the civilian government to step in and help reform the economy. And uh, the first time it happened, 18 months later, uh, General Nguyen handed the government back. But in 62, when he took over, it was for good. The problem here is, were it not for COVID, actually, uh, the military might have gotten their seats uh, 25% and more quite handily. So in other words, the handling of COVID by the government appears to have been, from what you said, they've, they've handled the, the crisis well. And, and, and so what you're saying is that that actually helped bolster they're showing in the in the elections the fact that the government the the NDL actually did a good job with with COVID. Yeah, it did. I came back from Myanmar in uh, early August. Number one, to vote or make sure that my Washington state ballot got in to pay taxes and to do other admin stuff. Uh, little did I know that the uh, COVID situation in the states would get bad enough that. Uh, maybe only three countries on earth want Americans to visit. And uh, on the Myanmar side, in my township, the township government told my teammates, like, you know, this guy better not come back until he's either vaccinated uh, or America somehow gets its act together with COVID. But as of August, Myanmar had had about 300 cases and only six deaths. People were compliant. The public health information campaign uh, conducted by the government was good, accurate, and timely. And just about everybody in the country, regardless of what language they spoke, knew the basics of what it would take to bring the virus under control. So everybody was proud of that. Now, Myanmar did have its second wave when the new uh, mutations uh, started coming in. That having been said, the NLD did not do a bad job of, of handling things. Most Myanmar people feel that the government is truthful in the case of COVID-19. And, uh, you know, will, uh, Myanmar people will be compliant uh, with social distancing, hand washing, 
and the other measures that it takes. We could probably have a, an episode dedicated entirely to, to this particular issue of COVID, but a couple of things that, that really jump at me while I listen to you talking about how things were handled in, in Myanmar. One thing that, that strikes me is how in places like Myanmar and other places that are also underdeveloped, people do seem to be taking it, taking COVID very seriously. And, and I, I almost wonder if there is something there, right? Like maybe people who understand how bad things can get when you get sick, right? Like people who experienced perhaps in their lifetimes, the pain, right? The trauma of, of, of seeing a family member get sick and then perhaps not being able to do anything about it, right? Uh, or, or perhaps having to deal with it with a substandard health system. I wonder if that actually helps develop a consciousness in people. And then you contrast that to a lot of what's been, been happening here and essentially this absolute lack of, of, of consciousness that, that, that some people have, have exhibited. And I wonder if, if there might be something to that, right? The fact that people in poorer countries and even here in the U.S., I think within some of the traditionally disadvantaged communities, you see some of that behavior, right? People who say, look, I don't want to get sick. I, I know that things often don't go well when you get sick. So let me, let me just try to avoid that in the, in the first place. So I, I wonder if there's something there. No, in the case of Myanmar, and Myanmar isn't alone in this, but it's uh, very effective, very timely, uh, and very accurate and believable public health information from a government that, by and large, uh, people trust. That paired with the fact that Myanmar people are very charitable, and then they have a great deal of respect for social responsibility. All of those tend to make things work pretty well. Uh, Myanmar does have, even for a poor country, an exceedingly high literacy rate. But the fact is, in August, uh, as I was leaving, I tried an experiment. And walking down the street in the morning, I would stop an uh, elementary or junior high school student and say, tell me all about COVID. What do I got to know? And these kids would give me a five-minute instruction on what COVID is, where it came from, and what do I got to do to avoid it? How do I know I got it? These kids had it all. And it was, it was the, the latest information available as of that week. Uh, contrast that with here in Bellingham, where everybody I meet who is my own age, uh, which is past 60, no two people I meet have the same set of facts about COVID-19. And all of them are unanimous in telling me that they don't know who to believe or what to believe. And that points to a massive failure of, of leadership and public health information in this country. And we have no excuse for that. Those are fascinating reflections. There's so much there that we could talk about. Kind of taking a step back and focusing once again on the, on the political situation, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about Aung San Suu Kyi. And I, I know I butchered that, so... Um, uh, my apologies. You're pretty close. Okay, <laughs> I did spend some time on Forvo trying to trying to get that right. I I, I must <laughs> confess, uh, but thank you for that. But here here's a figure that for for such a long time has has been representative of of Myanmar's struggle for democracy. You know, she was I, I forget right, but she might have been you know Times Person of the Year. She was just a, an icon, right? And then she managed to enter uh, government and being in government is complicated, right? It's a lot easier to 
to be on the outside uh, criticizing a government to find yourself in that position. But I think with with her, uh, it was a little more than that. I think that um, especially with the human rights issues with the uh, Rohingya, as I recall, there there was disappointment perhaps in her lack of, of involvement or perhaps even more than that, right? I, I think that really, I think, accounted for a lot of that disenchantment. But overall, I, I guess one could say that her flower you know, faded somewhat after she went mainstream, if, if you will. Are those criticisms of, of her fair or perhaps we had an excessively optimistic view of her in the West uh, as, as she went into, into government or is she simply doing the best she can under the shadow of the military? It's a pretty good question. But the fact is that elections are not. She still had to manage uh, the military. Uh, the military still had 25% of the seats in the assembly. The military still had a huge chunk of the budget. And of course, they always had that great big stick laying uh, back in the corner if they needed to use it. Uh, that having been said, she's you know never been slow to, uh, to be vocal about something she really feels strongly about. She is a very stubborn person, and that's good. Uh, you, you can't be in lockdown and jail and detention for that long and not be stubborn. The fact is that uh, she and most ethnic Myanmar look at the Rohingya problem uh, the same way that a lot of people in the United States look at our illegal immigration problem. This goes back a long way, and historians on the question might fault me for my memory, but people forget that back in 1971, uh, there was a war between East and West Pakistan that led to the Pakistan army from uh, the West going to what is today Bangladesh and basically going on a spree of massacring the opposition after the opposition won an election. During that time in 1971, you had 10 million refugees go into India and you had 2 million uh, come into Myanmar. Now, Indira Gandhi at the time uh, had to send the Indian army into Bangladesh to put paid to the Pakistani army and what it was doing. But mainly, uh, she was worried about 10 million refugees in India. Now, Myanmar, at the end of the war between East and West Pakistan, you know, still had these 2 million refugees uh, in Rakhine State. They are Bangladeshi. Uh, they do not speak a language called Rohingya. They speak Chittagonian uh, Bengali. So the average Myanmar, and I say ethnic Myanmar, uh, believes that these people are descendants of people who never had legal status in Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar law is very clear about how long your family must have lived in Myanmar before you can attain full uh, citizenship. And I believe it's about three generations. This is not a new law. This law goes back to the 1940s. Throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, the Burmese have uh, tried to push these people back into Bangladesh with very little success. But in the 1990s, uh, UNHCCR got involved and, you know, these people kind of had a foot in Myanmar. And the way most Myanmars look at it and the way Aung San Suu Kyi looks at it, A, this is first and foremost an internal matter, and B, it's a matter of who is and who is not a Myanmar citizen. However, the Myanmar army, uh, the Tamadaw, probably felt uh, empowered to go ahead and act on this kind of thinking after Donald Trump was elected. 
again, uh, for all the reasons I've given before. But this thing has gone on, uh, at least since the 90s, since I first became involved in the country. I see the Myanmar side of it. I see the Rohingya side of it. But what I see, at least on the Myanmar side, is real stubbornness and generally a lack of concern of what the rest of the world thinks. That was actually very educational. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot about this topic, but I think you, you did a great job there of, of, of framing the roots of the problem in particular. I didn't realize that, that it had this connection to the, um, the partition of, of Pakistan, right, when, when Bangladesh became an independent nation. That's really interesting. And you also raise a very important point, which is that these issues are, are not unique to, to Myanmar, right? I mean, ultimately, even though perhaps things don't get to the, the level that they get over there, we have these conversations here. Uh, countries in Europe are having these debates as well, right? And ultimately, as, a, as an outsider, you can have a different perspective, but it's, it's also very important to understand how the people in, in Myanmar are, are looking at this. Trying to end on a more positive note, earlier you alluded to the possibilities that, that Myanmar presents. And uh, this is something that I thought when I went there for work, comparing Myanmar to some of the other nations in, in Southeast Asia, at least when I went, it, it was hard to go there and, and not come away with a feeling of, of optimism about what the country might achieve. If you look at the population, it's, it's not inconsiderable. At least in, in my line of work, I was beginning to see how some of the companies that were doing manufacturing in places like Vietnam were beginning to push some of the lower end manufacturing to Myanmar, right? So it's easy to see the trajectory that the country could follow to, towards becoming a, a manufacturing powerhouse. So where does the country go from here? I mean, obviously, it seems as if the short term is going to be turbulent. But assuming that things can, can become stable and that the country can get on some sort of path forward, what do you see as the economic future of the country? Maybe give perhaps a little bit of, of your own perspective on, on what the country might be able to achieve. 2012, we had the first ever Myanmar Business Forum. And uh, I believe Steve Dickinson from your Qingdao office came down. And so we spent some time together. But we had an Italian real estate guy uh, who made the observation very early on that economic progress in Myanmar would look more like Vietnam, slow, shallow, steady, upward over the course of about 20 years. I think he was right, and most of us who had already had experience in the country kind of agreed with him. There wasn't going to be a boom like uh, Shenzhen or Tianjin or you know a place like that. Unfortunately, what the military has done by this action this morning is, uh, as we would say back in Arkansas, they've gone and peed in the chili. The fact is that they did so not understanding that it would have a, a very, very serious dampening effect on foreign investment. You don't build bridges, railroads, ports. You don't do that thing in Myanmar without a lot of foreign investment. Unless it's Chinese money, which honestly does not give a damn about democracy, unless it's Chinese money, you're not going to be getting that money now. I know that many companies and uh, many nations that are uh, thinking of putting sovereign wealth into Myanmar are definitely rethinking those plans. 
And in the case of companies either doing foreign direct investment or joint ventures, uh, if they had second thoughts before, uh, fortunately, most of their agreements have some kind of force majeure clause in that they are now fully uh, thinking about putting into effect in order to get out. Uh, The military doesn't understand how much economic damage they can do in as little as a year in terms of destroying investor confidence. One thought on this, I've I've been listening to a great podcast on the Southern tour that Deng Xiaoping took to Shenzhen and other places in the South. You might, might be familiar with that from your time in China. I think one of the themes that is, is present in, in recent Chinese history is this idea that say what you will about the Chinese Communist Party, there are at least some elements within it that kind of get it. And, you know, so certainly Deng Xiaoping comes off as, as the, the best example of this attitude, right? That there are certain things that just have to be done and whatever troubles they might have at the present, you need to, to, to look beyond that, think of the future, and, and maybe in some cases provide that sort of strong guiding hand to make sure that economic development takes place. But just to confirm from, from what you're describing, it does not appear that the, the military in Myanmar is really, that doesn't appear to be their role, right? From what you're describing, it's not as if they're going to be ushering in any economic reform or anything like that. No, uh, the economic reforms and the new laws that have come out over the past, let's say, five to eight years have uh, been drafted with a lot of foreign help. You have to remember that back in 1996, starting about then, uh, the military did its level best to destroy the education system. And it really shows. And Aung San Suu Kyi herself realizes that Uh, Getting the education system back to what it was is going to be a generational undertaking. As for the military, you know, they're military guys. I do know a couple of Tomadol men who have been to Johns Hopkins SICE, but I don't know anybody that uh, has been to the Wharton School of Business or, you know, something like that. Uh, The military does have its own uh, business conglomerates, and and those are run okay. Uh, They are are all profitable, but none of them are contributing anything to the national purse. uh, They're running their own mobile phone system with the Vietnamese military. It's uh, the fourth operator, Mitel. Uh, But I do not think that uh, the military is capable of undertaking uh, economic reform over the whole country. They certainly aren't going to be able to achieve such a thing in a year. You know, progress is going to be generational and it's going to be a slow uphill progress. It's not going to be a get rich quick place at all. Well, Robert, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to thank you as we do all guests, but especially for coming on on such short notice and for allowing us to produce very timely content. Really grateful for that. Uh, Before we let you go, I'd like to ask you for any recommendations you might have for our listenership. I would say still very relevant today. Uh, Back in the uh, 1980s, you had a Swedish writer, Bertil Lintner. At that time, I think he was with Far Eastern Economic Review. Uh, But he did a series of books on Myanmar that are are still very relevant, uh, especially focusing on the 1988 strikes and riots that uh, led to an even harsher military crackdown. 
Berto Lintner, uh, any of his books would be uh, worth reading uh, for someone who wants to take a deep dive into the country. Current journalism, uh, the nice thing about journalism over the last seven years is that although they do practice some self-censorship, we do have uh, English language journals in uh, Myanmar that are quite good. Myanmar Times being one and Frontier Myanmar being uh, way better. It's a, a very good journal that comes out daily. Thomas Keane is the editor and you know he's managed to keep body and soul together. Frontier Myanmar is worth reading right now, at least until the military walks into his office and uh, takes all of his stuff. As it happens, the recommendation that I had myself was was an article from Frontier Myanmar uh, and, and the publication more generally. And to be completely honest, this was a, a discovery that I made um, as I prepared for this interview. But I have to, to completely endorse that last recommendation. For, from what I've been able to see, it is, it is a, a very good publication. And frankly, I have to say, I wish that there was something like that for every country in the region, right? Because there are countries where it's, it's very hard to get good English content. So this definitely a great project. And as I was doing my research, I, I found an article that, that mentions you. And the title of it is Fragrant Oil, Rare Fungi and Big Bucks, <laughs> <laughs> uh, written by Ann Wong. And we're going to be putting up uh, a link, as we always do in our blog posts. But that was a great read. So I, I felt like that, that was something that, that had to be shared. Uh, yeah, Ann Wong came up there in the spring of uh, 2016. The Rawang uh, nationality was having a homecoming. And so we invited her up for that. They're a small uh, ethnic group of about 65,000 people. Their home is uh, Putao District. I have several Rawang working for me. As a matter of fact, uh, some of their families are here in Bellingham and Oak Harbor. But by way of signing off, though, I will say that until I got out of the army and went to China and then I went back to Burma, I did not appreciate lawyers and I did not appreciate journalists as much as I should have. Since being in Myanmar this time, there is literally not a damn day that goes by that I'm not engaged on, uh, you know, my opinion being sought on, you know, some law that's being drafted, be it for forestry or for land use or something like that. But I did not appreciate how important lawyers and the law is until I was in a country that's trying to finally write some laws instead of what they got, which is a mishmash of British colonial law and uh, military band-aids and muggings on paper, so to speak. But anyway, I appreciate the work that lawyers do in uh, trying to make their way straight and your firm has been great help to me over the years in making sense of what I was doing in China. Even before I joined the firm, I had read about you in the in the China Law blog. So so I know that the relationship is a, is a longstanding one. So thank you for those kind words. And thank you again for being on the podcast. We look forward to having you again before too long to discuss the next set of developments in Myanmar. Well, I'm waiting to find out uh, what the military will do with people coming and going. Last word this morning was that all flights uh, in and out of Myanmar had been canceled until May, but I've yet to get a confirmation of that. I'm due to get the second shot of the Moderna vaccine on the 26th, 
And it had been my plan to be on the first thing smoking back there because being away this long and having so many projects up in the air, they're worried over there and, uh, and I'm worried here. But everything that's happened over the last 24 hours has made that far more critical that I, I get back there. Well, we've managed to work with uh, with guests uh, all over the world. So finding a, a time that's suitable for you over there and for us here might be slightly challenging, but I'm sure that we can do it. So definitely look forward to that second round. Yeah. Let me say that the one thing in Myanmar that has uh, you know, met all of its technical promises is uh, telecommunications. That having been said, yeah, we'll be able to talk from Myanmar. Look forward to it. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.